Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess our weaknesses. Oh Lord, we confess the weakness in our mind. So often, our, oh God, our minds are like sieves and we forget what we hear from your word. So Lord, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now and to help us to remember what we learn from your word and to put it into practice. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue our series in the book of Joel, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. Uh, and we've been working our way through it and we've seen the terrible devastation that God had brought upon the land of Israel. He had sent plague after plague of locusts, one, two, three, four times it appears, where the locusts had just eaten everything in the land. And it seems that a fire also had gone through and devastated the land in a great fashion as well. We'd seen the judgment of God poured out upon the land of Israel. But we've also seen the response of the Israelites and the encouragement to the Israelites as to what they should do in the light of the Lord's judgment, this terrible devastation that has been come upon the land of Israel. And what was their response? Well, it was to turn to God, to repent of their sins. In their suffering, they were to turn to God. And we saw that back in chapter 2, verse 12, earlier in the chapter. It says, Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. And so we looked at the subject of repentance uh, that week that we explored that verse together. But we've also seen God's response. As the people have turned to God, as they've repented of their sins, we've seen God's response to their repentance. And what was that? Well, he made wonderful promises to them. As people were mocking Israel and as the Israelites were despairing and turning to God, he made wonderful promises. What promises did he make? He made the promise to take away their enemies, to take away the locusts, to sweep them away into the depths of the sea and into the desert, to take away the locusts. And that's what we looked at last week, the way that God would take away the enemies. But also, he wouldn't just take away the enemy, he would also bring great blessing, and particularly the idea of food, that there would be an abundance of food. And that's what the second half of chapter 2 is really concerned with. The middle of chapter 2 is about this great abundance of food that God would pour out upon his people as they've turned to him in repentance. And so we've looked at how that applies to us today, that God has promised to take away our enemies, and he has promised to supply us with abundance of food now and also for eternity, that he is one who cares for his children. And now we come to chapter 2, verse 28. And I think there's a, a wonderful turn that takes place here in verse 28 where there's a real spiritual turn. At first, there's a real concern about physical matters in the earlier part of Joel, which is of great concern, of course, to the Israelites and to God. He has made us uh, body and soul. But there's a real spiritual turn that takes place here. And I think an encouragement to the people of God that God would indeed defeat their enemies and supply them with food forever, that he would supply them with an abundance of food from then on. And how does he make sure that they understand this, that they understand that they are indeed saved from his judgment? Well, it's by the promise of giving them the presence of the Holy Spirit. He promises that he will pour out his spirit upon the land of Israel. And we see that in verse 28. Verse 28, look with me now at Joel chapter 2. It says, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. How can we know that God is really going to defeat our enemies? That God is going to bless us now and for eternity? Well, it's by the presence of the Holy Spirit upon God's people. 
upon all his people is the promise that is made here in Matthew, uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 28. What does it say? And afterward I'll pour out my spirit on all people, literally all flesh. Doesn't matter what nation you are, God will pour out his spirit upon all nations, upon all flesh, Jews and Gentiles as well. And not only all nations, but we see how he is going to pour it out upon all his people by the way he discriminates here in the text, or he's using universal language, really, by speaking of everybody that is a part of his family. Look with me at verse 28 where it says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. doesn't matter, male, female, you will have the Holy Spirit upon you. Both genders have the Holy Spirit. Who else is to have the Holy Spirit? Well, it's all ages. Verse 28, and it says, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. doesn't matter what age you are. If you're a child of God, you will have the Holy Spirit upon you. And what else do we see in the text to make us understand that it's all his people who will receive the Holy Spirit? Well, it's all classes of people, all social classes. Look with me at verse 29. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Literally, if you were to translate verse 29, it's the idea of a manservant, and, a wor- and the word for maidservant is used in the text. So it doesn't matter whether you're a servant, whether you're a boss, you will receive the Holy Spirit if you're part of God's family. God wants people to know that he will indeed take away their enemies. He will indeed bless them. And how does he want them to know that? By the fact that he is giving his, his spirit. The presence of his spirit will be upon all his people. But how will you know that you have the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon you? How will the Holy Spirit show that he is upon a child of God? Well, there's many ways that the Holy Spirit manifests himself. The Holy Spirit works, the many things that he does. We see in the Old Testament and into the New, but even in the Old Testament, we see again and again that the Holy Spirit is one who gives life and strength to his people, that he gives great power to those who belong to God. How strong can someone be when they've got the Holy Spirit upon them? Well, if you look in the book of Judges, you can see someone snap a rope that is tied around him and kill a thousand animals with the jawbone of a donkey. One person, a thousand enemies with the jawbone of a donkey. Who am I referring to? Well, of course, Samson. The Spirit is upon him. He was able to do great acts with the power of the Spirit. But we also see that the Holy Spirit gives life and wisdom, not just life and power, but life and wisdom and skills to people, skill enough to create a tabernacle with all its furnishings. The Spirit was upon God's servants so that they could create a beautiful tabernacle where God could dwell And so the Holy Spirit manifests himself in different ways, by giving his power, by giving wisdom. But also we understand here in the text, I think it was primarily the way that Joel wants us to understand how we can tell if the Holy Spirit is poured out upon someone is by the fact that they have knowledge. Knowledge of who? Knowledge of God. What do we see in verse 28? It says, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. What is something that the Holy Spirit does? He gives knowledge of God. He gives knowledge of God. How is knowledge given? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you look in the Old Testament, many times the knowledge of the Holy Spirit is given by the way that is described here in the text, by visions and dreams, 
Prophets were able to receive knowledge of God through these means by the power of the Holy Spirit. But why is knowledge of God so vital? Why would that be what's emphasised here in the text? That when the Spirit is poured out, people will have knowledge of God. Well, it's because it's through knowledge of God that we have life, that we have power, that we have strength, that we have skill and that we have the ability then to do God's works. What God wants us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit is as we know God and know what he wants for us, his will, that we can then do those things. If we don't know God and we don't know what he wants, then we're not going to do his works. But it's by the Spirit coming upon us and giving us knowledge of God that we're able to live according to God's ways. Now, when was this fulfilled then? There's a wonderful promise here made to God's people that in certain days that were to come, that God would pour out his Spirit upon them. I'll pour out my Spirit in those days, it says there in verse 29. So what are those days? When are those days? Well, one of the fulfilments of this prophecy, of course, is in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, which we had read for us before. We read from Acts chapter 2 and we saw the fulfilment of these words on the day of Pentecost. How do we know? Well, it's because Peter says in Acts 2 that the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost upon the apostles in fulfilment of Joel chapter 2. And he quotes it, as we read before. We saw him quoting this very passage that we're looking at this morning in Joel chapter 2. Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 2 as well. But how else do we know? It's not just from Peter saying it. We see the actions of the Holy Spirit there at Pentecost as well. What do we see? We see people of all nations embracing knowledge of God. We see people of all nations, and they're listed there. There's a whole bunch of different nations that were gathered there at Jerusalem that day. And they heard knowledge of God being proclaimed. And they were receiving the knowledge of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So much so that the language barrier was actually jumped that day. That it didn't matter what language they spoke, they were able to hear knowledge of God in their own tongue, in their own language. And so we see that Peter, of course, applies this text to that day, and so that's an authority for us, but we also see by the actions of the people that day. And the way that, where it says here, I'll pour out my spirit on all people, on all flesh, was fulfilled that day, as many people of many nations embraced knowledge of God. So we see that it was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Is that the only time that this passage is fulfilled, that God has poured out his spirit? No, the promise is fulfilled in our day as well. In our day as well, this promise is fulfilled. How do we know? Well, God tells us. God tells us in his word that the early church, which continues through to today, the church of his people, received the Holy Spirit indiscriminately in terms of age, gender, in terms of profession, the Holy Spirit comes upon his people. We see that in a passage like uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Apostle Paul is talking about believers there, that they've all received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come upon them. And it's on all God's children. doesn't matter what nation, what gender you are, what age you are, whether you're rich or poor, you receive the Holy Spirit as well. And that's what he teaches in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 as well. The Apostle Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. A fulfilment of this passage is there 
spoken of by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. But how do we know today that God has poured out his spirit on his people even today? Of course, Paul is talking about the early church, but we carry through to today. How can we know that that still applies to us today? It applied to the people of Pentecost. It applies to the early church. How does it apply to us today? How do we know that we too have the spirit poured out upon us? Well, what was the way that the, um, that the prophet Joel wanted the people of God to know that they had the Holy Spirit? It was by the fact that they had knowledge of God. The fact that they had knowledge of God. How do we see that the Holy Spirit has been poured out? It's by people knowing about God. And we see that today. People have knowledge of God like never before. How did knowledge of God come to people in the Old Testament? How did it come to people in the Old Testament? Well, it was more like raindrops. There was this knowledge of God that dropped bit by bit on prophets and priests and kings, they would have this knowledge bit by bit. It didn't come like a downpour. It was dropped on people all over the place within the land of Israel. And why was this the case? Why didn't it drop on all of Israel? Well, the knowledge of God was veiled to many Israelites. Many of those who were called the people of God had a veil over their faces so that they could not see the knowledge of God. There were many people who identified as children of God, but they did not know God. They did not know God. It came like raindrops. But what has happened today? What has happened to, since Pentecost, since the church has expanded through the centuries? Well, it's, the veil has been lifted so that there is like a waterfall of God's spirit and his knowledge, knowledge of God pouring over God's people. That's that word that's used here in in. Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and in 29, this idea of pouring out, it's the idea of spilling as well, that it can spill over, that the Spirit has spilled over and poured out upon people. And we read this, that this idea that there is this knowledge of God that has been granted to people today, unlike those who were called the people of God in the Old Testament. We see this clearly taught to us by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's found on page 1143, if you have a church Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'll read from verse 14. 1143, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we see the Apostle Paul teaching quite clearly the veil that covered the people of God in the Old Testament and the way that it has been lifted to us for us today by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, But their minds, that's the Israelites, were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here we see the Apostle Paul teaching very plainly that people in the Old Testament had a veil over their faces much of the time to knowledge of God. And that's why we see them doing atrocious things, not living according to God's ways. If they knew God, they would not transgress his law. 
but instead a veil covered their hearts, their faces, their eyes, their ears, and so they could not hear, they could not see the knowledge of God. But the Spirit has come and he lifts the veil so that people know God and live according to his way. It is by the Spirit that we can know God. John, uh, John teaches this, where he quotes the words of our Lord Jesus where he says, but when he, this is Jesus speaking, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. It is by the Spirit that we can know what is true and he is the one who guides us. So how do we see this today? We see in Scripture that the way that we can know that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon God's people today is by their knowledge of God. How do we see this in practice? The Word testifies to the truth of this. How do we see it in practice? Well, I can give you a few ways that we see it in practice. A little child today who knows Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, knows that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah the Lamb of God, a child who knows that Jesus takes away his sins by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and it's taken away by faith. That child who knows that Jesus is the Messiah who takes away sin by his death and resurrection by faith in him, that child has spiritual knowledge that even the patriarchs would have wanted to know. Yes, they had knowledge of God, but not in the way that the Spirit's knowledge has been poured out onto a little child who understands who the Messiah is and how the Messiah has taken away sins by his death. And it's all by faith that we are righteous before God. That child has immense spiritual knowledge. How else can we see that the Spirit has been poured out upon God's people today? A Gentile can know more than a Jew about God, a Jew who has memorised the entire Torah, who has memorised Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And there's Jews who can do this. They've memorised the Torah. But a Gentile who has the Spirit poured out upon him can have greater knowledge than that Jew of God. How else do we see this today? A housewife can have a greater insight into the Bible than a college-trained professor who's been through seminary, got a master's, got a PhD, and yet has missed something that a housewife sees. Why? Because she has the Spirit upon her, the Spirit of God, revealing knowledge of God that the college professor has missed. So do you want assurance that you're a child of God? Do you want assurance that God is truly in you, that God is going to fulfil his promises that he has made in the scripture and promises that we've even seen in Joel chapter 2, that he is going to take away your enemies and he's going to bless you and feed you and care for you for all of eternity in heaven. Do you want to know that? Well, what should you do to know that God is truly going to save you? Well, you should look to see if the Holy Spirit has been poured out onto you. You should look into your heart, into your mind, and see if the Holy Spirit has been poured out onto you. Why? Because he's the guarantee of your salvation. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. And we see this taught to us. We see it taught to us in, in 2 Corinthians as well. In 2 Corinthians, that, passage, you know, that part of the Bible that we were just in, where Paul talks to the Corinthians, what does he say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you turn back, if you're still there in 2 Corinthians, to verse 21? 
Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee, a deposit of what is to come, the salvation that is coming to us. And he says the same thing over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. Turn with me over the page. Chapter 5, verse 5. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And he says something similar in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of his glory. What has God done for his people? Well, God's put a deposit on them. God's put a deposit on his people. By giving us what? By giving us the Holy Spirit. What kind of deposit is this meant to be? Well, it's kind of like the deposit you put on a house. If you're intending to buy a house, you put a deposit on it. Why do people put a deposit on a house? It's so the house cannot be purchased by anybody else. If I put a deposit on this house, it is now going to be mine, and no one else is allowed to buy it. It is mine. You're promising by putting that deposit on there that you're going to finalise the sale of the house to you in the future, and it will clearly belong to you in the future. And God's done the same for us. He's put a deposit on us, guaranteeing his purchase of us as his house, as his building. He's done that for us. But is God's deposit sufficient? Is God's deposit sufficient to block all third parties from getting involved in the sale and making a claim on us? Is God's deposit sufficient? The answer is yes. Why? Well, who is the Holy Spirit who is the deposit that has been made upon us? He's the third member of the Trinity. He is God himself. He is a sufficient deposit. He is God himself, the one who is dearly loved by the Father and the Son. And what does that mean? The Holy Spirit is no insignificant deposit. He is a significant deposit that has been made upon every one of God's children. And how else do we know that he is a sufficient deposit upon us so that God will make claim to us and take us one day to be with him in heaven? Well, he's been poured out upon us. It's not as though we have a tiny bit of the Holy Spirit. We can talk in such a fashion. No, he has been poured out upon us, as Joel chapter 2 tells us. And then what else do we have to know that the deposit is sufficient? Well, what has the Holy Spirit done by being a deposit upon us? He has taken the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God himself, and applied it to our hearts. That is the price that has been paid in order for us to be saved. The blood of the Son of God. God himself has bought us with his own blood, we read in Acts chapter 20. We have the Holy Spirit who has taken the blood of Christ and put it upon our hearts. That is the deposit that God has made upon us. So God has surely staked his claim upon his people and will not walk away from his house in us. Do you make a deposit on a house and leave it? Abandon it. Abandon the house and abandon the deposit. 
No. So will God the Father really abandon his beloved spirit who has been deposited into our hearts? Would you walk away from a house you poured your hard-earned cash into? No? So why would God walk away from his spirit who has poured the blood of Christ into that person? Particularly when you consider that God doesn't owe anything else upon us as his purchase. There's no mortgage outstanding on us. God has actually paid in full for us to be his people, to be his house. God doesn't owe anything else. So what is still to be done? It's just the final paperwork of the sale, the transaction. The final paperwork by the judge, by the appointed administrator, just needs to be completed. And who can stop such a transaction, particularly when God himself is the judge, who will make sure that the transaction is final? What's another way that we can look at all of this? Well, God has clicked and he will collect. He has paid for what he wants by the Spirit and by the blood of Christ Jesus, and he will collect what he has paid for. He will come and collect it. So we who belong to God have nothing to fear. Well, what about our enemies who lay a claim to us? Who are our enemies who still try to take a claim on us? Well, it's our flesh, our sinful flesh, tries to make us think that somehow we're not going to be saved. Or the world mocks us and says, do you really think that you're going to live forever in a place called heaven? And Satan, of course, our other enemy, he lays stake upon us as well and tries to make us doubt that the transaction will take place and that God will collect upon what he has paid for. But it's hopeless for these enemies to mistake such a claim upon a transaction that the Lord has made. Why? Because there's no debt outstanding. There's no debt outstanding. Our flesh, the world and Satan might still fight for possession of us. May still fight. And they do. And you see it in your life. The flesh still wants you. The world still wants you and Satan still wants you. They fight. But it's a done deal. It's a done deal. One day, there will be no more legal challenges. No more legal challenges from the flesh, from the world, from Satan. Why? Because all our enemies will be destroyed, as we heard last week. All our enemies, physical, spiritual enemies, all destroyed. Our flesh will be destroyed. The sinful part of us will be taken away. The world will be destroyed. Satan will be destroyed. And there will be no more legal challenges upon us for the rest of eternity. They'll no longer be in any position to stake a claim upon us. So what are we like now? Well, in one sense, we're like kids, getting possession of the house with Dad. Why? Well, because our father has bought the house. And he's right there, triumphing in every legal battle that comes up to stop us taking possession of the house. And how does he do that? By the Spirit, the great counsellor, the, the lawyer who God has given us. So that any attack comes, the lawyer is able to say, uh-uh-uh. This one's mine. This one is mine. He has given us this lawyer to walk us home to heaven, to the place where we will be for all of eternity. So do we want assurance that we belong to God? Do you want assurance that you belong to God? That one day your enemies will be defeated completely? That you will be supplied with all you need for all of eternity? Do you want that assurance? Then look for the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. How? 
How should we look for the presence of the Holy Spirit? Well, one way is by the fact that he helps us to overcome our enemies now and provides us with physical and spiritual food today, as we heard last week. But the great way that, we're going to, that we've seen this morning in Joel chapter 2 is by the fact that we have knowledge of God. We no longer have a veil over our face. Instead, we know God. And that proves that the Holy Spirit is in us. What sort of knowledge should we have, though? What sort of knowledge should you be looking for in your heart that you know and believe? Well, of course, knowledge of God's existence. God's existence. One, but also Father, Son, and Spirit. You know who God is, the Trinitarian God who is proclaimed by the Spirit in the Scriptures. And you know that this is the Word of God, that this is God's Word. The Bible that is before you is God's Word. What other knowledge should you have? Well, you should have knowledge and faith. You should believe these things of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. You look at Acts chapter 2, and Peter, you can have a look at it this afternoon, he quotes from Joel to prove that what is happening at Pentecost is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And then what does he proceed to do? What does Peter proceed to do? He starts to talk about Christ, his death. His resurrection. He proclaims those things to the people that are there. That is the knowledge that the Spirit brings to people. His knowledge of the Son of God. His death and his resurrection. And also, of course, knowledge of forgiveness of sins by repentance and faith. That is a knowledge of God. You look at other religions, they do not have this knowledge that we're saved by faith. We think we're saved by works, other religions. But it's the Spirit's knowledge that reveals to us that we're saved by repentance and faith. And of course, if you're looking to see whether the Spirit is in you and you have knowledge of God, well, you would have knowledge of the judgment that is to come and heaven and hell for those who are unrepentant and who have sinned against God. And you shouldn't just have the knowledge of God. You should also have faith in these things as well because that is what the Spirit gives. He gives faith to the believe these things. So if you want to know if you've got the Spirit of God in you, look at whether you know these things and whether you believe them. You believe these things are true. And if you do, what should you do? Well, you should rejoice and thank God for the deposit that he has poured out into us. Rejoice and thank God for the Spirit, our counsellor, who is being given to us to walk us home to heaven, to give us great assurance that God has staked us as his. He has put his claim upon us and he has given us a great deposit of the Holy Spirit. We should thank God for the Spirit and thank God for the knowledge that we have through the Spirit, the knowledge that we have through the Scriptures before us and rejoice in that knowledge. But if you're an unbeliever and you're here this morning, you're not a Christian... Well, I want to talk to you this morning, and it doesn't matter whether you are Jew, Gentile, young, old, male, female, what sort of job you do, what social class you're in, you can receive the Spirit too. That's the promise that's there in Joel chapter 2. How? Return to God. Like the people of Israel did long ago. Rend your heart. Return to God. Repent of your sin. Remember the promise that was even given to us by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, 
the veil is taken away. The veil is taken away whenever anyone turns to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. See your sin. See how terrible it is and the judgment that is coming upon you. And turn to the Lord. Repent of your sins. And then what should you do? Ask God for his spirit. And read the Bible for knowledge of God. This is where the spirit speaks. Through his men of long ago, he speaks. Ask for the Spirit's help, and then read the words of the Spirit that are here in this book. And what should you do? Don't just read, but believe. Believe what you read. Trust that Jesus died for you as well as for all the rest of his people. And what should you do if you find yourself reading and praying and having knowledge of God and believing these things are true? Well, then you should... Rejoice and thank God. There are people who are amongst us who would say they cannot believe that a few years ago they would have laughed at the things that they know now and they believe now. They, they think, they, I was speaking to someone just a couple of weeks ago and they said, if you'd asked me five years ago that I'd be where I am today, I would have laughed at you. But now I not only know these things, but I believe them. And if you find yourself doing that, do what all people of God should do. Rejoice and thank God for his spirit who has staked a claim upon you, has been poured out upon you and applied the precious blood of Christ to your heart so that you one day will know the complete and utter defeat of all your enemies and the blessings of God for all of eternity in heaven. Let's come to God in prayer now. Let's speak with him. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your mercy in pouring out your spirit upon many of us so that we know you and trust in you and have eternal life through repentance and faith. O oh Lord, we ask, though, that you would forgive us for our unbelief and our doubts about our salvation. O oh Lord, we know that we have formidable enemies, that Satan is against us, the world is against us, and even our own flesh at times is against us and causes us to doubt our salvation. But Lord, we ask that you would help us to continue to look for the Spirit's work in our lives, for knowledge and faith in you. And so rejoice in what you have given us and give you the glory. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who does not have your Spirit and so is not going to heaven, oh Lord, we ask in your mercy, pour out your Spirit upon them now so that they not only hear these things, but they know them and believe them and have life in the Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.